1: Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host Matt Miller.
2: Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news.
1: Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, and at bloomberg.com/podcast.
2: Let's get to Lovely Inceo now. We've been talking about um, having her on. We're excited to get you on, Lovely, and you're the CEO of BM Technologies. It's among the largest digital banking platforms in the U.S., I wonder how much can be done. And I was thinking about this when uh, Coinbase went public, or at least um, had their had their uh, direct listing last week. It'd be great if I could have my bank account somewhere, trade things like you know digital currencies, stocks, and bonds, and also somehow input my employment details so that my tax uh, filings would be automatic. Can, can something like that ever happen with an, with an online, with a digital banking platform?
0: Yes, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I think a couple of years ago we saw a lot of exuberance and excitement about fintech. fintechs. Fintechs are really coming in and saying, Hey, banking, you're, you're old school. You're not doing this in a consumer friendly way. We can come and, uh, really disrupt what's happening and provide a way better customer experience. And many, Um, You know, players came in, did that, Robinhood, Coinbase, you know, SoFi, Chime, etc., BM Technologies, etc. But what a lot of them started doing was really unbundling financial services, where it was one product at a time. Someone's going to do personal loans better than what exists today. Someone's going to do, you know, investing better than what exists today. Someone's going to do banking better than what exists today. But it was all separate rather than you know, really creating a full-service digital banking platform. And what is now happening is the realization that we can create um, a technology platform where all of this is weaved together. Maybe that institution doesn't even have to provide all of those services. They can plug in through APIs, the best in breed from investing, from crypto trading, from banking, for advice. Um, And that is what we're seeing, and that can absolutely happen.
1: I'd love to get your thoughts, Lovelyna, kind of about how your business has been impacted, how it has changed over the past 14 months with this pandemic. It, you know, We're hearing, obviously, lots of stories that people are doing more and more of their banking digitally. How has it impacted your business?
0: Yeah, well, absolutely. I think, in general, the pandemic forced an acceleration of digitization, the use of technology, forcing all segments, all generations to begin using technology for all sorts of things, grocery and and e-commerce, and banking being one of them. And so as it relates to our business, we did see exponential growth last year in our new business lines. We saw 600% plus growth in deposits. Uh, We saw 250% plus growth in spend over the year. And so overall, we saw a lot of consumers logging into their app a lot more using a lot of the features, the functionalities, the saving and budgeting tools. And obviously, increase usage, spend balances across the board.
2: Does it matter what um, what platform people use, or I, I mean, like iOS versus Android? Are you agnostic, um, or, or do you head for that?
0: No, absolutely agnostic. We have to move towards, you know, if, if people want to have a truly better banking experience, you can't create barriers like that. And so, not only iOS, Android, but really cross. Um, different channels, whether that's your phone, whether that's, you know, online mobile, whether that's being able to access through Alexa. You know, we're coming into a world where we use and access many different devices, and we should be able to do banking and everything else that's important to us through various different channels and devices. And I think that's the direction people are heading, and and so is BM Technologies.
1: BM Technologies, uh, lovely, and I'd love to get a sense of kind of where – What's the competitive environment for your company, and, and, and where do you see growth going forward?
0: Yeah, so as you had mentioned in the beginning, we are one of the largest digital banking platforms in the country today, and uh, we have over 2 million account holders, and, and we're growing quite rapidly. We did go public earlier this year through a SPAC vehicle, where our ticker is BMTX. Um, and you know, for, for us, it's, it's really about how do you continue to expand the digital banking experience in the most profitable, high-growth way while still addressing customer pain points. And so a lot of players out there are taking a direct-to-consumer approach. Bank Mobile is actually taking ab to b to c approach and something called banking as a service. Our belief is that every single customer in this world, really, ha- you know, would benefit from having access to financial services and that banks shouldn't be the only ones that have the ability to offer this service. You know, Every business, every employer, every government entity uh, should be able to offer banking, and that is where you get into the strategy of banking as a service, and that is um, the vertical that, that we are most invested in creating and helping non-banks get into the banking business with fully branded banking services to be able to create more loyalty, more engagement with their customers and with their employees.
1: Loveline, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. I really appreciate that. A really interesting uh, story, uh, a growth story here on the consumer banking front uh, as digital be- plays a bigger and bigger role in consumer banking. Loveline Sidhu, Chair, CEO, and Founder of BM Technologies. Kind of a fascinating story there. I know, just yeah. speaking for myself, I'm doing much more of my day-to-day consumer banking on the digital platform than I did prior to the pandemic. And I think we're hearing from a lot of financial institutions that
3: Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com.
4: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
1: Matt, let's switch gears, talk about the fixed income markets. No better person to do that with than R.J. Gallo, Senior Portfolio Manager for Fixed Income, and he's also head of the municipal bond group at Federated Hermes. R.J., thanks so much for joining us once again here. I'm looking at the 10-year, uh, 1.58%. It doesn't scream inflation to me. Give us your thoughts here uh, on the fixed income market and maybe some concerns creeping in about inflation.
5: Yeah, well, good morning. Thanks for having me back. Um, you know, if you just look at an intraday chart, it wasn't all that terribly long ago when the 10-year peaked out on uh, March 30th, I think it was, or March 31st at around 177. So, you know, we've retraced, give or take, 20 basis points since then, Um at the time, the market was very focused on the reflation trade, let's call it maybe even the inflation trade. (laughs) Um, And I think we still believe that that we're going to have a massive rate of growth as we come off the, you know, difficult economic period related to COVID that we've been through. And we do feel inflation is biased upwards. We've seen it in the year-over-year numbers. I just think the market might have gotten a little ahead of itself maybe at the end of March. If you look on a year-to-date basis, you know, the the 10-year real yield, is up about 30 basis points, 32 basis points, call it. And then the break-even on top of that is up about 36. So on the year, real yields are up. They're still negative, very low, probably will go up further. And inflation break-evens are well north of 2%, which the Fed has to like. We think that the retracement yields we've seen so far is some of the fear came out of the market, but the trajectory is still upwards in nominal yields, real yields. Break-evens, maybe a little less so, because inflation is starting to To perk up, and these break-evens are pricing in well north of 2%. So we don't think that this most recent trade is time to get long bonds. We still like short.
2: And on inflation, I mean, you see huge growth coming up. Do we have huge inflation, and does it stick?
5: No, I mean, it's it's, it's the key question. Uh, I think that everyone understands base effects. You know, the price level doesn't fall all that much in American history, what it did last spring as the COVID shock set in. So as we lap that by 12 months, the year-over-year numbers are high. But does it stick? And I, that, that's the key question. And everybody's debating it. I would say internally at our uh, at our shop at Federated Hermes, we believe that the inflation trajectory is upwards. Now, there's some people, and I would say there's almost like a demographic difference. People who were in this business in the 70s and 80s, uh, you know, they, they feel like we need another Paul Volcker. I mean, they're they're, they're much more concerned that inflation is not only going to stick but accelerate. Uh, people who've been in this business, you know, call it from the mid 90s on, you know, seem to be like yeah i 'm not so worried, and then the younger people didn 't worry about inflation at all uh, because they 'd never really seen it. Um, our view is is sort of in the middle. I think that inflation is going to have a tailwind i don 't think it 's going to become unhinged i don 't think we 're talking about three, four, and five percent rates of inflation by any means, but I do think the Fed will have su- some success, some satisfaction after decades of being disappointed by inflation exceeding two percent their framework opens the door for them to react as opposed to be preemptive. That's a massive difference from Paul Volcker and the decades that followed him.
1: All right. So if we're going to have inflation on any meaningful scale, RJ, presumably it has to come from wage inflation as opposed to some of the other commodities that we're going to see a base effect over the next couple of quarters and some of the reported numbers. So do you foresee presumably higher wage inflation in this economy over the next 12 to 18 months?
5: Well, I think that workers are going to be incentivized to come back in into the workplace. And some of that is going to involve enticing them with higher rates of pay. You know, that translates to salary and wage increases, especially in the areas that were the most severely COVID affected like travel and hospitality, et cetera. Um, I think over time, yeah, you will be seeing some higher rates of nominal pay increase. Um, again, I'm not in the camp that it becomes an unhinged problem. Uh, I, believe, I actually believe the Fed when they say, we know what to do if inflation gets too high. I think we all know what to do. They would tighten, and they would tighten in 50 to 75 basis point increments, something that hasn't been done in, like, forever. And I think if they did, what do you think financial conditions would do? They would roll over. People would be very nervous if the Fed suddenly was spiking real rates to douse inflation. And that's the tool they know works. There has been an asymmetry in the Fed's toolkit. They can't seem to get inflation up. They know how to douse it Uh, so they changed their framework last august to becoming reactive let the inflation show up it's called the bunker hill you know don't tighten until you see the whites of inflation's eyes that's the new new approach very different than the preemptive forward-looking uh tightenings that we saw in the past
2: well and even then don't tighten right the idea is that inflation is just going to run right by you and be gone
5: yeah yeah i mean i think no so their framework is what they want inflation to rise above two they want it to have signs that it's going to stay above two before they tighten. So what if it goes above two and it hits two and a half, and I think one can infer that two and a half would be fine from the Fed standpoint? If it just stays there for a month or two and starts to roll back over, then, yeah, you, you, then you do have a problem. Their framework doesn't produce the tightening that they want. Um, that's why I think they're, in a sense, pouring cement around their feet and saying, nope, we're standing here, and we want you, the market, who believe inflation goes up, because inflation is a little bit of a game theory concept, right? If if price setters, those who charge prices for goods and services, believe inflation's rising, they put it into their pricing decisions, and it becomes self-fulfilling. So if the Fed can allow that to happen without it becoming, you know, boiling over and too hot, then you get the inflation you want, and you hopefully don't have a boiling over economy. If you do have the boiling over economy on the inflation front, the Fed knows what I mean, people might criticize me. I I used to work there a long time ago at the New York Fed. (laughs) I think it's going to work. But it's going to take time, and rates are heading up in the meantime. All
1: right, RJ, thanks so much for joining us. As always, we appreciate your thoughts and input. RJ Gallo, Senior Portfolio Manager, Fixed Income. He's also head of the Municipal Bond Group at Federated Hermes, giving us his thoughts on the credit markets and on inflation. Not too concerned here in the near term. Matt, let's talk about semiconductors here. There's definitely been an issue with supply of these chips on a global scale, and that's having ripple effects across the global economy. I'm talking about, you know, just take global autos, for example. A lot of the manufacturers are saying that they can't meet their production goals because there aren't enough chips. Let's get the latest on what this means and how this might play out. We do that with Rory Green, China economist at TS Lombard, based in Seoul, South Korea. Rory, thanks so much for joining us here Give us a sense of what's going on in the semiconductor market right now. What's the state of the market?
4: Yeah, well, COVID-19 has really uh, brought forward an acceleration in a structural demand shift. So it's not just autos. We're talking about uh, demands for consumer products, data centers, um, a whole range of different categories of demand really spiking off of COVID-19 and likely to stay high for you know, a, a few years now. This is a structural shift we're looking at, which we're in the very early,
2: early days of. How do you expect it to hit GDP growth? I mean, mostly I, I think of the U.S. and Europe, but I guess you're, you're thinking about it more globally, obviously.
4: Yeah, that, that's right. I think mainly, and the main hit is going to be it's a quarterly hit rather than a the moment rather than a hit to annual growth rates. So it'll be a Q on hit for the big auto producing nations, talking about Germany, Mexico, uh, slight a slight drag in China, but over the course of the year it's still expecting that these um, uh the, the production lost in Q one will be made up throughout the subsequent subsequent quarter. So it's, it's by the way, by the still way, a transitory shock.
2: Rory, yeah, you know yeah. I'm here I'm here in Berlin. So I, I mean we produce um a ton of cars and motorcycles in this country obviously and mm. throughout europe they're big plants and in the u.s i know where all the plants are i don't know much about the production in china except that you know elon musk is making teslas there and everybody wants to have everybody's got a joint venture there how much auto manufacturing is there actually in the world's second biggest economy yeah
4: it's it's a big uh, manufacturing big chunk of the the economy as you say everyone's got a joint venture there, I and mean, then you've got a huge uh, huge chunk, which is just purely um, for the domestic domestic market as well, so it's it's a lot a lot of cars being made um and a big employer as well so it's the intent, the labor intensity is very high, so compared to Germany where it's all automated in China, it's still a big employer, so it's, it's a very important sector in China.
1: Rory, as we think about the global you know, chip market, it's, I guess what we've learned, maybe starting with President Trump and some of the tariffs, uh, and then with the pandemic, mm. is that you know, a lot of countries are thinking about reshoring some of their chip mm. manufacturing capabilities. Do you expect that to be a real trend? Are we going to see more semiconductor manufacturing sites, say, on continental Europe in North America?
4: Certainly in North America, I think
1: Europe's plan is still a bit lacking
4: because I mean, what we're talking about here is it needs a lot of political and financial capital to be invested to get this reshoring process underway. We're calling, talking about $10, $20 billion to build just one um, fabricate, one semiconductor fab. So it needs a lot of investment. And Biden, I think, is putting this in place, Intel, has made a very big effort, made a large bid to become the West, not just the US, the West's geopolitically secure manufacturer and is starting to make investments accordingly. So I think we are going to see this trend increasing going ahead. But Europe still seems a bit caught whether they really are going to stump up enough money to, to, to get some, uh, some more fabs there. It's going to be hard, hard to see.
2: I don't know how to compare the announcements, but the Intel announcement you mentioned seemed big at $20 billion until I heard Taiwan Semiconductor say they want to invest $100 <laughs> billion. Is that just uh, spin or is that legitimate investment in that um, size?
4: That's a legitimate investment. Um, that over the next couple of years. So I'll be running about 25 to $30 billion a year in, in CapEx. So it's a large investment and a very positive sign for the industry as a whole. And this is the reason that TSMC and and Samsung, to a lesser extent, are ahead of Intel. They're consistently just pumping money into both um, capacity and R&D. And that's what's enabled them to build this leading edge uh, that they have now ahead of Intel and the rest of the world in, in chip
1: production. All right, just real quick, Rory, 30 seconds. Is Taiwan and Korea Are they still the leaders in global chip manufacturing?
4: Yes, they are. Still the leaders, and I think likely to stay that way for the next decade.
1: All
2: right, very interesting stuff indeed. And that um, that investment really does put uh, the size yeah. of U.S. <laughs> and, and European investment to shame. And maybe Biden will turn that around. Rory, Rory points out he's behind a big part of the reshoring. I don't know who would be behind it here, though, Paul, because— the EU can't even agree on like you know buying vaccines.
1: Yeah, so. exactly. I don't know how that works on over there on your scale there Matt. Um it you know and it kind of just <laughs> makes the the Brexit folks uh I guess feel a little bit uh, smarter over Vindicated. The UK. Yeah,
2: absolutely. It, it's got to be done really on a national level here I think is the lesson Being learned. In any case, Rory Green, great to spend some time with him. China economist at T.S. Lombard, staying up late in Seoul where it is, what, 1130 at night. This is Bloomberg.
3: Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com.
1: Stiefel
4: Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
1: One of the key stories of today uh, is around global soccer and a group of the world's richest soccer clubs, including Manchester United and Real Madrid, announced plans for a European breakaway league starting in august and that's got people all up in arms not just in europe but around the world as it is a global sport let's get the latest we would do that with david hellier bloomberg reporter david i i don't have a dog in this fight here i'm not a huge fan of european soccer i follow it but i'm not passionate like so many people are to me this just looks like a money grab talk to us about what's going on here
6: yeah i mean i'd agree with you um it is a money grab, It's, um, uh, but there's lots of different layers to it. Um, so you've also, got that's what businesses of, do. That's
2: right? what they, businesses they want, do. You're they right. want to make money.
6: <laughs> yeah. Um, you've got a group of owners, um, three of whom are American, uh, Arsenal, uh, Liverpool, and Manchester United. Um, and you could argue uh, well, AC Milan is Elliot, the hedge fund. Um, and uh, they, for a long time, the uh, owners in, in Europe have been thinking about, um, you know, how do they how do they play more often amongst the bigger clubs? Um, they get a bit frustrated when they have to go to play in Denmark or, you know, uh, in Croatia, uh, some club that, that they probably never heard of, um, and they think that for an international audience, it would be much more um, attractive if they could always play against the top clubs. And uh, so they put this thing together. They've been doing it behind the scenes for for a, a while now. I mean, we've been reporting about it since um, about a year ago.
0: Um,
6: and they finally come out in the open. And so they've got 12 teams, 12 of the, you know, absolutely top teams in Europe uh, to sign up to it. But it, it has horrified everybody, politicians, fans, fans, uh, you know leagues uh, everybody <laughs> um you know some of the uh, i haven't i haven't seen such an e- extreme reaction uh in you know the, all the years i've been reporting on on soccer
2: shouldn't we i mean i tend to have initial reactions to things that are maybe conservative and uh, based in my free market upbringing often i'm wrong when i look back at my initial opinion <laughs> but my first take um david is that let the market decide. Why do we have all these politicians jumping in? You know, if people don't want to watch a Super League, um, then they won't, right? Uh, and then the, the business venture will fail and the Champions League will continue. Everything that they that they want is going to be there. And the stuff they don't want, they just don't tune into.
6: Yeah, I mean, you know, that's a, it's a very good point. Um, I think, I mean, you know, the politicians are jumping in. You've got Boris Johnson, who's a a conservative politician. Uh, He's jumping in because he knows that a lot of his constituency, uh, a lot of the fans are up in arms and, uh, you know, just he's doing it for his own purposes. I I think he probably believes exactly what you just said. Um, So I don't think he's being true to his his word, really. Um, Why not let it just go? I suppose... um, I, I, for me, anyway, uh, the bit I haven't really explained is that what they're doing is so alien to uh, the, 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 the the competitive element in sport in, in Europe is trying to uh, set up a, uh, a league which has 15 permanent members who can never get relegated and never come out of the league, no matter how badly they do.
2: Like and the NFL. The
6: concept of, yeah, yeah, exactly. But it, it works in the NFL because that's, always been the case I think I think it's like I don't know we're, maybe we're deluded but we we believe quite passionately in this history of soccer and 100 years or you know have a, it's longer than 100 years now um, you know the, 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 I don't know we just have an attachment to it in Europe I think uh, to the, the the concept of promotion and relegation and so because we believe so firmly in that allowing this league to go ahead actually alters the whole pyramid i think that's that's the problem and if it was just the case of let them go ahead i mean but, but you know there's a good i think you're right in a way i mean they, you know why not let them and, and some people even who hate hate the concept are saying just let them go let them go they'll fail and then they'll want to come crawling back and we'll tell them no um, you know so it's it's kind of um uh, but i mean basically it's it's just aroused a lot of emotion really and it's very interesting i think the the fact that a lot of it is becoming focused on the American investors. Um, Uh, So it's JP Morgan Bank who's financing it. Um, As I said, it's Liverpool, Man United, Arsenal, all owned by Americans. There's been an incredible um, invasion of U.S. money into European football uh, or soccer. Um, And I think that's because the, the franchise values in in America, are just so huge, so enormous, and it's very hard to get a hold of franchises. And they've seen that European soccer clubs are changing hands quite readily, so they've they've all come in here. But yeah, it's. The, the, about, Is I there think sense, to them, David, how this the,
1: how this might play out? Is this just a bargaining chip for other negotiations, or can this happen?
6: Well, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, so the the current um, league organizer, UEFA, the current organizer of the Champions League. They've got their own uh, plans uh, to ex- extend their competition, have more matches, potentially get more money um, to satisfy the clubs in, in in that way. But I'm not sure they. Maybe they've left it too late because these guys have already signed. So it depends whether they. You know, we're being told they've signed binding agreements; they can't come out of it. But you know that if if there's a good enough uh, uh, deal being offered on the other side of the street, that they, you know, they might look look there.
2: I just look at, you know, Formula One as a model for how badly this could turn out because um, it's similarly all big money. It's all encased now yeah, in right. one big league that it's just dreadfully boring. Yesterday's race in the Molo mm-hmm. was OK, but it's, mm-hmm. nobody wants to watch anymore the way they used to. And, and that could be where these guys are headed.
6: Yeah, I mean, it, it could very well be. And, um, you know, that, uh, I mean, that would be an amazing, uh, you know, punt taken by JP Morgan, who's, who's sort of, they've got four billion um, at risk here. Um, but who's I think they Who's, who's your team, David? Who do, who do you support? My team, my team is owned by a Russian oligarch. It's Chelsea. <laughs> oh,
5: <So laughs> yeah. I mean, Abramovich.
6: Brnovic, and so they're. they're I mean, I, I thought I didn't expect them to go into it. The, the, you know, the, the, the signals were that they wouldn't necessarily go into it. But I think they're they, they're in it not because they need the money, obviously, but because of the fear of missing out.
2: Absolutely, the FOMO there. David Hellyer, <laughs> thanks so much for covering this for us. He's a Bloomberg reporter on this European soccer story, or football, as they call it here, and it is playing out massively